0: All right. Well, I know I haven't recorded in a while, but we're just gonna. Re- I was just looking at something, and I thought it might be helpful. Well, talking about karma. So a lot of people don't want to talk about karma because it's very dependent on what sect you're in and then your perspective. So when I began discussing it, uh, we talked about. There's the Theravadin perspective, then there's the Mahayanan perspective, and you can lump that together with the Yogacara and then the Madhyamak and uh, the Tantric, right, to look at t- Tibetan. Um, I mean, there's a big chunk that kind of agree, arguably, whether they use the same terms, but we're going to get into that. It, arguably, they all pretty much agree, but it's a matter of how they explain it. Then there is uh, the Hindu Belief which kind of predates, of course, the Theravadin and the Mahayana, and the they kind of mix together a little bit more than history might say. Then there's the Asian perspective on karma, which I think is a little too removed from uh, the Indian subcontinent, and it may have missed, jumped the shark, as it were. But so we started talking about the Theravadin, and I was just thinking that, geez, it's really simple for most people to explain, and there's a couple of little holes. But still, I don't understand why people are afraid to talk about him. But in the Theravadin perspective, karma, um, let's think first how consciousness, or what they call citta, is born. So we have these six um, consciousnesses. You have ear, nose, right, sense of uh, smell and taste. But the sixth is the mind. The way the Theravadins believe that karma works is uh, – these minds, these consciousness, the citta, is born and, 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 you know, dies away. Everything's impermanent. So when you see something, that gives birth to I-citta. And whether you attach to it or not, that might give birth to mind-citta, right? Preferences, vadana, tone, as they talk about feeling. And the way they explain it is simply that one citta... Uh, conditions the next. That's the karma. So when you give birth to one mind by seeing something or hearing something, it conditions the next chitta that might arise for things like preferences. Oh, that's a pretty a flower or that's an ugly sight. That's the idea of condition. right? And the idea, you take it one step further, the hope to get to perfection would be at one point that citta, say the i-citta, might not condition the next citta that's being born. Thus, you have a perfected consciousness, what they would call in Theravadin um, the bhavanga sotla, which I like to call the um, amalavijnana, which is the perfected consciousness. But the problem lies is that unconditioned citta, when it dies away, it's actually capable of conditioning the next citta that were to arise. It's an unconditioned consciousness. How is it then able to condition the next? So as a workaround, it just needs to be explained a little further. So think of these six different consciousness as operating independently, as they must, because you can see, hear, smell, taste all at the exact same time. Each one of those produce a new consciousness, a new citta. What is conditioning? So I argue, that's where the sixth uh, consciousness comes in. This mind, this, uh, when preference, feeling, tone, that's where they're born. So I argue that, that's why we look at subduing the somatic experience, the physical experience in the first jhana. Because, because, They're the easiest to subdue and the least problematic because your eye, your ears, your nose, they'll produce a citta, but they're not as problematic as, say, the mind. The mind will not only produce a consciousness based on a perception, but they can uh, not only attach to it and and misperceive and cause all sorts of trouble attached to it, but the real problem is unlike... uh, Perceiving minds of ears and nose, the mind of thought doesn't need any external stimulus to produce its own maya or illusions or feelings, tones, these ideas that it can just produce these new minds, these new chitas from nothing. So the idea here is first we subdue the body. That's the first jhana. Then we start to work into these feelings, the second jhana, which is the feeling. So first you're subduing the first five consciousness of ear, nose, taste, right? Why? Because you need to be able to manage what you can first. That's the easiest step, right? Because you're just going to perceive. This is why it's common they talk about noting, right? Noting is just a simplified uh, term for the dependently arisen or dependent origination or codependent origination seeing the source of all things so you can see the source of your somatic experience your your feeling the sense of heat or cold or smell or sight color right or sound that's a common uh, practice that will uh, will look at so you can see where this premise comes from. So they don't believe anything is permanent, not even these minds. And I'm going to get into the difference. They believe these are all impermanent, the bhavanga sota, this perfected consciousness that you can achieve by minimizing how much you attach to the body, right? Just notice, oh, you know, this is what the body's feeling. Note, dependently arisen, it's an idea, right? It has a source, don't attach to it. The next step would be to subdue that mind, right? So in the Theravadin perspective, the karma is essentially the choices you make, cause and and, uh, effect, but more so, it's also this storehouse. It's what they call it, uh, the uh, Alaya Vijnana in Yogacara and Madhyamaka. They have uh, another consciousness. But it doesn't matter whether we're counting here. Just think of it as a simple explanation of why and how this works. So in the Theravadan, you're just supposed to take a lot on faith, which is odd. Because you're not supposed to over-intellectualize, but you do need to understand these things. So I argue that we're starting to see some of the Zen's perspective that, you know... They misunderstand getting too into the Dharma and studying versus um, needing to understand something as simple as, as what we're all striving for. So when the Theravadins are talking about karma, they're a little bit nervous about managing these big holes. So how do you explain If you can manage your somatic, your body experience, you're no longer attaching. You're just, oh, well, I'm sitting here, and oh, there's some color, and there's some sound, and some shape. But you're still dealing with the mind. And as we know, jhana, the first four particularly, are temporary states. So you can actually subdue all of these, first jhana, the body. Second jhana is these feelings, these tones, the mind, the consciousness of self, This is the storehouse of the self because you have preferences. You like blue. You don't like pink. You like hot weather. You don't like cold weather, right? You have preferences. You like hot food. You don't like hot food. Spicy. That is the storehouse of the self. And what's funny is the Theravadans use terms like uh, bija. These are seeds, karmic seeds, and if these chittas are born and die away, it seems odd if one mind is conditioning the next for them to use this term of a, of a seed, right? Because you can see the seed of the original teaching. It goes back to the Hindu tradition of, like I said, a storehouse of these seeds that you've produced over your lifetime. And that takes us into what's funny, a later Development, but it's interesting because uh, the influence went back and forth. So, in the Mahayana and the Yogacara, the Madhyamaka, and the later Buddhist traditions, a lot of people believe um, they were influenced, for example, early on by the the Vedic tradition. But what's interesting, it was back and forth. The Madhyamaka and Yogacara actually influenced uh, Vedanta, Advaita, Kashmiri Shaivism, uh, later Hinduism. And vice versa. They did influence back and forth. So what's interesting is when we start to look at Yogacara and Madhyamaka, I really appreciate everything about how they see this. So simply, karma is the self. It is everything you've done in your existence. They don't go into previous existence. Um, I guess I could quickly mention that. How does the Theravadins um, settle uh, death and rebirth. They believe in the same thing as I mentioned. So when you are passing away, there's a specific t- name for the consciousness of when you're passing away. That consciousness then conditions this reborn, rebirth consciousness. And so the cycle continues. But I much prefer the Yogacarans and the Madhyamakans perspective in this. And we can even look at, uh, look at it in the bardo Thaduul the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which is actually uh, the Book of Natural Liberation in the Between States. And it explains to us, first, that we have this additional consciousness where we lay these karmic seeds, these bijas. When you do something, when you prefer something, this starts to build up this template that you believe to be yourself. Simply preferences, labels, experiences, reference. But you start to attach to them and you have aversion to things that aren't part of this template. That's the alaya vijnana, what we would call the storehouse consciousness in Hinduism. So you can see how this is in Theravadin as well, but much richer in, in the uh, Yogacara and Madhyamaka tradition. So the karma is all of these uh, choices you've made, right? You can see the dependent origination of even karma right, cause and effect, it is the buildup of the self, your preferences, your um, experience, your biases. The idea is to empty, I love that, empty this storehouse of these karmic seeds. So, same idea that we have the sixth consciousnesses of uh, eye, nose, ear, taste, and then the mind, then they add more consciousness. So there's not just the mind. Above that is this uh, storehouse that conditions these different chittas or minds. And what's important is there's one step after that is very infrequently talked about. You can then empty that storehouse and achieve what's called perfected consciousness. That's a mala vijnana. And as I said... I find that to be a much better um, teaching tool because even recently I have seen at least three examples of people misunderstanding nirvana. Nirvana is something that some people argue about, uh, whether it's uh, here or somewhere else. Um, We won't even get into that right now, but personally I think it's just a state that can be here or somewhere else but nirvana not being the end goal per se. Keep in mind that Buddhism is about liberation. Liberation eventually is to leave, right? So let's think of it as growing up in a small town and you are desperately to get out of this small town. So your end goal is to move away. But before that, your first job is to develop the skills necessary to leave, right? Do you understand what I mean? If you live in a small town that you desperately need to get out, you can't um, just get on the bus and leave because you're gonna fail and end up right back where you started, right? Without any skills or experience or connections or, or even um, destinations, right? I've talked about this before. Having the destination alone is beneficial. Fun, it's transformational. What you need to do is develop your skills. Learn another language or learn a skill that arguably isn't needed in your small town. That's actually a twofold benefit because one, if you have a skill that isn't even needed in your hometown, even if you leave and fail, you're not going back to that same hometown. So the idea is the same in Buddhism. The goal is to achieve nirvana, which is to step off this wheel of becoming, no longer living on this samsaric whatever it may be, no longer, you know, born, dying, uh, subject to these selfish desires that cause dissatisfaction. Nirvana. But, The important step prior to that is cessation, Naroda. And that, believe it or not, is also the step before Nirvana. So you're supposed to uh, use Naroda to cease your somatic experience and these feelings and the tones. And uh, the third jhana is to achieve a certain amount of experience with equanimity, being one with all the universe. And eventually the fourth, to be able to reside in mindful equi- equanimity, right? So that's being at one. And I'm going to relate that to Hinduism again, because that fourth jhana, even though it being temporary, gives you a window into something that the Vedantins call Om Tatsat, which is Om is God, Brahman, or all of the power of the universe. Tat, in the Buddhist perspective, this is everything in between and everything that you practice towards liberation. So it would be Dharma from a Buddhist perspective. And Sat would be the Sangha. But in this case, Sat, meaning everything that you do with a pure heart to achieve this liberation. And what's interesting, Sat is... A form of sattva. Sattva, we've all heard many times, because we even were talking about this in recently, what is a bodhisattva? Simply a wise, perfect being. Sattva, like Nietzsche's Ubermensch. Sattva is just the best that we can be. So sat is not simply person's best. This goes one step further and explains that sat is asking us to remember, like Sati or Sato or Sata, Sat in Om Tat Sat is there to remind us non-dual. There is no you and Om. You are one. Not two, but one. That's the Om Tat Sat. And, okay, so just to wrap it up as I was talking about, That uh, liberation is our goal. Uh, Moksha and Vedanta. uh, uh, Wisdom. Vijnana. You want uh, want wisdom. You want to uh, replace ignorance with wisdom. I mean, that's the goal. To cease ignorance, attachment, and aversion. The three poisons. I mean, really someone was asking, he doesn't understand the Bodhisattva, why they would postpone their own liberation. Well, the idea, and I misunderstood this for years myself, coming from a a Mahayanan perspective, right? This idea of the selfish in the Theravadin. Well, Theravadin is selfish only if you limit yourself to the Theravadin canon. If you see Theravadin... As the first step towards liberation, um, managing the self before you move on to some of the higher states. I argue the first four uh, formless um, jhanas is Theravadin, right? To manage the self. And then once you're able, like we talked about, once you're able to sit in the fourth jhana and experience mindful equanimity, being one with the universe, the same idea. This is why I mentioned Om Tatsat. This is the Vedanta idea that we are one with Brahman nature. And this is what's missing from the Buddhist idea. It doesn't have to be permanent, but the idea is becoming one with all. The same idea is what I mentioned with the Om Tatsat. So the Amala Vijnana, the storehouse of your karmic seeds, is the storehouse of yourself. Not that it exists, but like I said, think of it more like a template that you apply to all your experience. So you can not apply that template and experience reality much more firsthand. But you're still living within it. So here's this idea that the true equanimity is experienced when you let go of the self and the only way to let go of the self is to see the liberation of all sentient beings as important as oneself, as one's own liberation. Because the belief is that striving for one's own liberation is selfish because why do you deserve liberation more than another? But don't misunderstand. This isn't to postpone one's liberation. That's why I am differentiating. So it's not the nirvana that we're talking about. What we're talking about is that amala vijnana, that perfected consciousness, niroda. When you've achieved cessation, you experience nirvana, but you don't Step off the wheel of becoming. That's the pari nirvana. So arguably, once again, there's no black and white. There's non-dual. So remember that there is no two, there's one. So we can say that, well, no, there is no enlightenment without nirvana. But there is no cessation. There's no nirvana without the cessation. Right. So first comes the cessation. And achieving nirvana is separate from leaving samsara. So don't think of it as selfish. You're still working towards liberation for oneself so that you can aid all sentient beings in their own liberation. It is uh, like the, the tantric belief that compassion is what builds equanimity. And equanimity is what breeds freedom or liberation. It's this belief in a separate self that defines us and our suffering. But at the same time, it's perceiving, like I said, om tat sat, it's perceiving that you are just part of this giant system, right? like i 've always said, think of the soul as nascent, meaning we only use it when we need it, same as the self. Think of it like taking water from a great a uh, vast body of of uh, water, taking a, like a a vessel of water, a glass. I mean, I have to watch myself right because trying to make myself understood here, so you were to take yourself a uh, a goblet. A chalice of water from a great body of water. That's your water. In every way, you perceive it as your own. And this is no different than than the self. Think of it from that perspective. It's your mug, but, I mean, you could pick up any other mug, and it would then be your mug again. Same as the water. You fill your mug with water, and it becomes your water. This is the nature of self and you could just perceive, perceive, picture yourself um, dumping that water back into that vast body of water. And all of a sudden, that water is no longer yours. It's part of this giant system. And then you dip in and take another mug of water, and once again, that water has become yours. It's different than the body of water. That's the transformational um, perspective. That's it. Just to see oneself as having reached into the heavens and pulled down just a small portion of that great energy that we all share, you're using it to power yourself through this existence, and it's just designed for you to rejoin. That's why I call uh, reincarnation uh, recycling. That's how I relate it. So there you go, karma.